So today we're beginning a new series of messages entitled Thermostats and Thermometers. And you're thinking, well, that's kind of an odd title for a Sunday morning message series at a church. That sounds like more of something you might encounter at like the residential living trade show at some convention center. Uh, thermostats and thermometers, that's Pavilion C. Hopefully by the end of today's message, you'll understand the frame of reference that we're using for this series. And, and probably even more important, I hope that by the end of this message, you'll be determined to come back here the next two Sundays and get this entire series of messages because it's really, really important. You know, I have to tell you something, and I have to be careful these days about how I say it. But my heart is heavy these days for what's happening to our children in our society. The deception, the manipulation, and the abuse that's being perpetrated on the most innocent among us is very concerning to me. And it seems like every arena of life, it's happening, it's happening in academia, it's happening in politics, it's happening in big tech, social media, the news. It, it's even now happening in the medical community. And my heart just breaks. And I don't really think that there's a more important topic for us to be talking about these days than this one that we're about to embark on. Now, the subtitle of this series, Thermostats and Thermometers, is setting the spiritual temperature in your home. And it might be tempting to think, well, this is about the family, this is about the home, this is about parents. And you wouldn't be wrong, it is about parents, but it's not only about parents. This is a series of messages that is for moms and dads, but it's also for grandmothers and grandfathers. Because oftentimes they play an enormous role in the lives of children. This is for aunts and uncles. This is for brothers and sisters. This is for best friends and godparents who are a part of your children's lives. No matter what age your children might be. This is for teachers and coaches, babysitters, daycare providers. This series is really for anybody and everybody who has a child of any age in your life. Which if I were to guess, would include most all of us in this room and those of us who are online. So when I was beginning my career in full-time pastoral ministry, I was in my late 20s, I just finished graduate school, late 20s, early 30s. This was back in the, uh, the early 1990s. Remember the 1990s? That was the era of Michael Jordan, Bill Clinton, Oprah Winfrey. It was the time of uh, iconic television shows like Seinfeld and Friends and Home Improvement. The movies you watched were on VHS tapes. The music you listened to were on CDs. 
It was the era of grunge rock and gangsta rap. It was the time of Harry Potter and Beanie Babies and video game consoles and John Grisham novels. It was the time of the fall of Russia and the end of the Cold War. It was the time of the Gulf War and Oklahoma City bombing. And that's when I was just getting started. And it was interesting that one of the big discussions that was happening in kind of evangelical circles at the time was around the topic of leadership. It was, it was all the rage. And, and here's kind of a simple explanation of what was unfolding is that for generations, the pastor had largely been perceived as the shepherd. He was the one who was caring and compassionate and encouraging and supportive. He's the one who counseled. He's the one who did weddings and funerals and baby dedications. And he, he provided for his congregation and he provided for his community. He was the shepherd of the sheep, his congregation. And in the early 90s, there were several prominent um, pastors who had sort of a platform and a presence at the time. And, and they were changing the discussion that it was no longer about the pastor being a shepherd. It was now about the pastor being a leader, a dynamic, forceful, courageous, confident leader, executive type. And I don't think anybody meant it at the time, but one of the ways in which it all played out is that the leader was raised up as the supreme example of what a pastor would be. And, and it was sort of looked down then if you were still the shepherd type, you were weak and soft. And I think over the last 30 years, as the church became more of a corporation rather than a community of care and compassion, we're kind of picking up the pieces from the early 90s and trying to find a balance of what is pastoral leadership really supposed to be like and to do. Well, one of the interesting dynamics of that early discussion about leadership is that it seemed like none of the pastors could really define leadership. And it seemed like all the definitions that they were offering were definitions that came from like the marketplace, the companies and corporations, the, the world of dynamic executive leadership. And it didn't have much of a quality of Jesus in the definition. It wasn't about humility and compassion and care. And so it was interesting, there was one of these prominent pastors in the early 90s who, uh, who was a big voice for leadership, literally wrote dozens of books on the topic of leadership. And he probably presented the clearest, most concise definition that I encountered. And it was the one that I sort of gravitated toward because it was simple and I could get my arms around it. And it was at least a start. Now it wasn't comprehensive, but it was a place to start. And here's how he defined him. John Maxwell defined leadership is influence. And we could throw in a, a, I think it's an adjective. Leadership is relational influence. That whether you're talking about an individual or you're talking about a corporation, what you're talking about is, is influencing people through the dynamic of relationships. And so I, I've embraced this, this idea. Leadership is influence. And 
And I, I've really kind of wrapped my arms around it for the last 35 years now. And, and I think that if that's true, then two other things are true. And the first one is this. Everybody is a leader. Because everybody has influence. Everybody at one level or another, in one way or another, they, you all have leadership influence. Everybody in this room, everybody online, you, you have influence at one level or another. Whether you have a position and a title of leadership or not, you have influence. I've always believed that the secretary has as much influence as the CEO and the janitor can sometimes have more influence on an organization than the owner of the company. We all have influence. Everybody is a leader. And secondly, I believe that everything is leadership. Everything is leadership. Every nuance of our life demonstrates or reflects some form of influence. The attitudes that we have is influence. The words that we use, our body language, our facial expressions can change the dynamic in a meeting. Actions, and even more importantly, our reactions, that's influence. Our habits, our emotions, these are all forms of influence that we have as leaders in the lives of everybody that we encounter. Does that make sense? So if we understand that about leadership, then these two things are true. There's good leadership and there's bad leadership. And good leadership is influence that's used for what is positive, what is helpful, and what is, a, is constructive. But bad leadership is influence that's used for what is negative and harmful and destructive. This is how a janitor can have influence in the company. Just by his influence of whether it's positive, helpful, and constructive or negative, harmful, and destructive. And there's been lots of people throughout history who have done some really awful things, but they've been really effective leaders. They just use their influence in a bad sort of way. Okay, you ready? Ready? Our calling as Christians is to be a positive influence in our world. Part of Jesus getting involved in your life is that the hope of you being an influence in your society and in your culture. And here's why I know that. Because Jesus said this, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its influence, its saltiness, how can it be made salt again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and just trampled underfoot. Now, in this cultural context, salt was generally used as some sort of a preservative that meat could be kept a little bit longer if it was encased in salt and so the inference that Jesus is making to his audience is that society, like a piece of meat, is headed in the direction of rottenness. Sin corrupts everything that happens around us in our world. But you as a Christ follower, you can be an influence for good. You can stem the tide of the advance of evil in your society, in your culture, in your world by being a good influence. You are the salt of the earth. Jesus went on to say, you are the light of the world. 
The inference being that because of the nature of sin and evil, our world is a very dark place. But you as a Christian, you have influence. You can bring light, hope, healing, help. You are the light of the world. A town that's built on a hill cannot be hidden in the dark. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. That's not what you do with lights. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone. That's influence. In the same way, this is Jesus, in the same way, just like a light on a stand, just like salt on meat. In the same way, let your influence shine before others so that they may see your good and end up glorifying your Father in heaven. That's not for pastors. That's for people who've made a decision to follow Jesus. The Apostle Paul writes to the early church, he says this, be wise, be careful discerning, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, people outside of the faith of Jesus Christ. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation, this wouldn't just always be, you know, just words, but like the way that you conduct your life, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. The calling of a Christian is to have influence. So we have influence at work. When you're the one employee, perhaps, who's standing up opposed to a practice that may be approved in the workplace, but it's illegal, you have influence. You have influence at school, in your classrooms, as a teacher or as a student. You have influence. You have influence in your neighborhood, the street where you live, the subdivision that you're a part of. You have influence among your friends, the people that you run with, your social circles. You have influence at the country club. You have influence on the golf course. You have influence in your bunko group. You have influence in the friends that you run around with. Whether you know it or not, you have influence in your church. Every one of you, you have influence in your church. So if we understand that, it's not a stretch then to comprehend that we have influence in our homes or we're supposed to have influence in our homes. Listen to this. When it comes to leadership as influence, there's no debate that parents were intended by God to be the leaders of their family whose primary responsibility is to use their influence for good, namely spiritual health in the life of their children. Does that make sense? No, I hope you understand, and I believe you, you do. The, the Bible was not written as like this exhaustive, comprehensive parenting manual. It, like God was 
trying to cover a lot of other different topics. But there are examples of parenting strategies and parenting principles, and sometimes either implicit or explicit, God has things to say to those of us who have influence in the lives of children. Here's just a couple of them. Do you understand this? This is just a couple of them. Deuteronomy chapter six, this is established in the very foundation the nation of Israel was intended to honor. These are the commands, the decrees and the laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess so that you, your children, and ha, their children, like this is a legacy, this is a thing we pass on from generation to generation. Your children, their children after them may respect and revere, fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping his decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. And then watch this, this is so practical. Hear, O Israel, be careful to obey so that, you, so that it may go well with you and that you may increase great, greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And here's what you do with that. These commandments that I give to you are today to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them like it's completely normal in your home. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads with some Jews like literally do. Bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. In other words, there should be no place that your child goes with you that they aren't somehow being influenced in their spiritual journey because you are a leader. Sitting in that line at school, waiting to drop your kids off or pick them up, and you're identifying a hundred other ways that this could be so much more efficient. <laughs> you have influence. Look at this, Joshua. Now fear the Lord, serve him with all your faithfulness. Throw away the gods, the idols of your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve because you're gonna serve somebody, whether the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But I love this, Joshua. But as for me, as for me and my house, here's what we choose. We will serve the Lord. We're drawing a line in the sand if you want, chase after all your other gods, all your other idols, all the other pleasures and pursuits of life. But our family, we will serve the Lord. The book of Proverbs is full of examples of parents having leadership influence in their lives of their children. This is just one sample of it. Proverbs 6, my son. It's like a father talking to his, his like preteen son. My son, whatever you do. Keep your father's instructions or commands. Do not forsake your mother's teachings. 
Bind them always on your heart. Fasten them around your neck when you walk. They will guide you when you sleep. They will watch over you when you awake. They will speak to you. Proverbs 22. This is advice to parents. Start children off in the way they should go. And even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Get your kids started on the right foot. Whose responsibility is that? It's parents, big people, adults. And Ephesians, New Testament, just couldn't be any more clear. Parents, do not exasperate your children. We'll talk more about that next week. Parents, do not exasperate your children. Instead, here's what you are to do. You're to bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Did you follow that? I, I didn't do any sleight of hand, did I? It's very clear from the pattern of the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, that parents were to have an influence for good and for God in the lives of their children. So this is where the metaphor of thermostats and thermometers comes in. So, before I go there, if anybody like is an engineer and you design thermostats or thermometers, don't go crazy on me, okay? <laughs> it's a metaphor. All right. A thermostat. Here's the nature of a thermostat and how it functions. It sets the temperature. Too cold, we'll turn it up. Too hot, we'll turn it down. It determines the temperature. I'd like it to be a cool 72 degrees. We set the thermostat because it determines the temperature. A thermometer, it just reads the room. It just reads the temperature. It reacts to the temperature. If you turn it up, the thermometer is going to react and it's going to go up. Does that make sense? Okay. So a thermometer rises to the temperature that's set by the thermostat. All right. All the mystery will now disappear. You ready? God's design for the family was for parents to be thermostats. And I could step out beyond that and I could say, God's design for grandparents. You're to be thermostats. Aunts and uncles, you're to be thermostats. Brothers and sisters, you can be thermostats. Babysitters, daycare providers, you can be thermostats. Now, here's, here's just the frame of reference. And this is, this is not a slight in any way toward children. Children are remarkable. They're amazing but they have a limited capacity because they're young and inexperienced. So here's the deal. Children do not possess the maturity, the life experience, or the intellectual and emotional capacity for setting the temperature of a family. It wasn't their job. It's not their responsibility. They shouldn't have to make up the difference of what's lacking at mom and dad. I read a great article by um, a family therapist. Her name is uh, Brenna Hicks. 
She, she wrote this. Listen to this. Children are emotional beings. Children fluctuate with greater emotional swings, with greater emotional intensity, with greater severity, with greater frequency. They're constantly in an influx of emotions. They're emotionally driven. They're emotionally centered. They are not cognitive. As adults, we operate in our brains. They operate in their hearts. So there's automatically a disconnect there, which is why we tend to ask them questions because we expect them to think through and cognitively process, wherein they're actually emotionally driven and they're given to whatever they're driven by, whatever they're feeling. So you can imagine they are up and down all the time emotionally. So if we, the parents, the big people, if we allow ourselves to constantly be in a state of reacting, they get emotional, so do we. They're happy, so are we. They're angry, so are we. They get really upset, so do we. They start to yell, so do we. And you see just how this leads to a perpetual state of frustration for everybody. Interestingly, in contrast, if a child starts to get emotional and starts to dysregulate and starts to have an upheaval of their feelings and we're able to regulate and respond, I see that you're getting upset. I, the big people, I'm going to purposefully stay calm. I see that you're getting overly emotional, so I'm going to stay neutral. It does two things. It regulates ourselves so that we are able to be calm, patient, forgiving parents that we wish to be. But it also, okay, ready? This is free, all right? This is completely free. It also models for our children what it means to remain in control. Emotional regulation has to be learned. It is built, it is practiced so the more they witness it in the adults around them, the more capable they are of doing it for themselves as they develop, mature, and grow. Isn't that fascinating? Okay, listen. Parents who spend their time and energy reacting rather than responding. Good news. More about that next week. Parents who spend their time and energy reacting rather than responding to the attitudes, the moods, the reasoning, and the behavior of their child, they're turning over the control of their home to the one least capable of handling it properly. Parents are thermostats. They determine the temperature of the home. Okay, want to know the single most important parenting tip in the whole wide world? And if you like it, then you can put something in the offering plate if you want. <laughs> the single most important parenting tip in the whole wide world. I got it. You want to know what it is? The single most important thing that you can do as a parent is to be an example of what you want your children to become. You have to model 
for them what you want them to be. At the end of the day, the spiritual health and vitality of a home will never exceed that of the parents. Yeah, that's sort of how that feels. And I'll just say this, I'm not trying to be snarky. It's a road I've traveled. Dads, this is particularly important to you. Your children are never gonna surpass where you are in a pursuit of Christ. Don't think for a moment that the spiritual influence of the hour children spend at church each week can miraculously override the other 167 hours of the week influenced by the example of their parents. It's just, it's not possible. Any dentist in the room? David, you're a dentist. You're a dentist? Do you guys recommend flossing? What? But nobody listens to you. You just made my point. Dentists will tell you again and again, flossing's a good habit, but nobody listens to them. Doctors will tell you exercise and eating properly is a good habit. Few people listen to them. The law suggests that these speed limits, these are the best recommendations for these types of roads and nobody listens to them. So what are your children learning when they know the dentist recommends flossing, but mom and dad never do it? Well, evidently that's optional. What are children observing in the back seat of the car when you're going over the speed limit? And sometimes the kid will tell you, mom and dad, you're going too fast. And you go, oh, those are just options. Those are just recommendations. No, it's the law. Okay, if you take those examples, flossing, eating right, speed limits, the same holds true for the spiritual example that you set. If you try to get your children to be convinced that God is important and that Jesus is critical to their lives and that church is a place where we discover those things and yet it's not a priority to you, your children are learning something from your example. They're going, well, evidently that's not as important as mom and dad try to make it. And when they're little, they don't really have any kind of, you know, determination there. But as they get older, they start deciding, hey, it wasn't important to mom and dad to be there. So why will it be important for me to be there? And whether it's in high school or college, many children check out of the church, check out of faith, check out of God because they saw it modeled for them that way by their parents. Children observe the spiritual patterns of their parents and they draw conclusions as to the true value and priority of faith in spiritual life. Does this make sense? Okay. Love it when a plan comes together. I still have a few more minutes. So, um, I don't know if you guys know this. Every Wednesday, uh, Sybil Creek provides a podcast. Me and Wyatt Marchant, we sit down together. We have conversations. The Sybil Creek Conversations podcast. 
A new episode comes out every Wednesday. He and I sit down and we talk about life and the spiritual intersections of faith. We talk about all sorts of dimensions of living. We have these wonderful conversations. And in a recent episode, two-part episode, we talked about thinking and how thinking is so absolutely foundational to our life. In fact, I'm convinced that it's our thinking that ultimately determines the experience that we have in life because so much is formed in our thoughts. It's how we look at life. And so in that particular um, podcast, we were talking about the messages that traffic in our minds and how they influence our experience, which, which isn't just sort of like psychology and self-help. This is biblical in its very foundation. In Proverbs chapter 23, we read this. As a man or as a woman thinks, so is he. Why? Because our thoughts influence how we live. As a man or a woman thinks, so is he. In Romans chapter 12, the apostle Paul is writing to the early church. He tells them, man, whatever you do, because of the crush of culture in your life every day, then you need to renew your mind. You need to give your thoughts and exposure to the truth of God's scriptures so that you can compare and contrast what you're seeing around you and do what is the will of God. It's about renewing your mind. Later, the apostle Paul wrote to the church of Corinth. He says, you need to take every thought captive. You need to get your arms around what's trafficking in your head because those thoughts will influence the direction that you go in life. And then later in the book of Philippians chapter four, the apostle Paul actually, he gives the early church some categories and he says, think on these things. Of all the places that your mind will go, you as a Christian, you need to learn to think, sorry, think on these things, these things that honor God, that are true and right and good. Does that make sense? How our thinking is so critical? Okay, so I'm gonna give you something to think about. Like you can practice it this week. All right, this, this will fall right along the lines of like wise advice. You know the wise advice like counting to 10 if you feel yourself getting really angry? It's kind of calm, cool your jets. You, you know the, the counsel that says, you know what, you, you just need to take a couple of deep breaths before you respond. You know the counsel that says, you know, maybe rather than responding, you should just walk away, get your composure, and then maybe come back later and deal with the situation. You know all that? I, I didn't make that all up. That's part of... Okay, I'm going to give you something to think that I encourage you to practice as a way of changing behavior. You ready? Are you ready? I want you to learn to think this. I am a thermostat. Moms and dads. Grandmas and grandpas, aunts and uncles, babysitters and daycare providers, best friends and godparents. I am a thermostat. 
getting your kids up for school in the morning. It's not going well. It's been like this for eight years now. I am a thermostat. You're packing another lunch only for them to say, I don't like string cheese. I'm a thermostat. Sitting in the line waiting to pick the kids up. The hundred things that you have to do to get them something to eat and get them to soccer practice and get them home to get their homework finished and then get them bathed and their teeth brushed and in bed before it's too late. I am a thermostat. That teenager who's breaking your heart, making some of the choices that they're making and it is everything opposed to what you deeply believe and feel about life. I am a thermostat. I am a thermostat. I am the one in this situation responsible to set the correct temperature in our home. As the adult, it is my responsibility to respond in a way that best models for my children how to honor Jesus. Make sense? If you decide to come back next week, we're gonna talk about how to raise a child that loves Jesus. And then in week three of the series, we're gonna talk about what happens when it doesn't work. And your kid's spiritual journey is breaking your heart. Say it with me. I am thermostat. Let's stand together. Let me pray for you. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'd love to make your acquaintance. Be down here at the front. I'd love to meet you. God, you have called us as Christians to be an influence for good. You filled us with your spirit and the truth of your eternal word that we could have every confidence and be courageous in that leadership. We don't have to be obnoxious. We don't have to be inconsiderate, but we can be a force for good in our world. And God, I think, I think you would affirm that that begins in our homes. So I pray that you'll do a work in our hearts and our minds and that little by little we'll take steps become the best thermostat we can be. With your help, for your glory, in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. All right, gang, have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.